It might be impractical to seek out a new podcast. You won't know if one is good if you never take the chance. We'd love to suggest some films and recommend some songs. Lincoln's the one with the good taste and Noah is always wrong. You're damn but right. Any pod will do, my love. Any pod will do. It's on the list. It's starting very soon. Family Guy will stew. Peter. Any pod will do. It's on the list. Is coming right to you. Wow. Oh. 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 That's oh. a um. That's a parody of the TV on the radio song "Will Do." Oh, there! Uh, don't I know it, baby? Two thousand, yeah. Your favorite song. You were like Mason. It's time for you to do the parody song this week. Would you mind finding out, finding a way to squeeze Family Guy in a podcast into my favorite song? This is you know a Marjorie's telling you this. Yeah, uh, no, I'm I'm always asking you to find ways to squeeze Family Guy into the show. Off mic, it might seem like Mason and I have this very genuine, a good on mic banter. Off mic, I'm very mean to him and very demanding of his family it guy is, quota. It's very, it's, 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 um, you know, if we weren't bound by um, podcasting and doing this for free for no money or contracts, <laughs> yeah. I'd really be double, really be double thinking, thinking about my commitment to doing this show just because Noah is so dang mean to me. All the time. <laughs> Isn't is double think? What is double think from? Is that from nineteen eighty four? Oh, that's a nineteen eighty four thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. have to read that in it's... school? Um I did not. There were the kids in the advanced there was like an advanced English class and then there was like an that I was in, and then there was an English class like there's a subgroup kind of subcategory of that group, which were even smarter kids that I was not in. And they had to read 1984. Was it but AP? I, like, was it an AP class? No, this is in, like, middle school. Oh, gotcha. This okay. was, like, earlier than high school. This wasn't even AP. I didn't touch AP stuff. It's not because I just had no confidence in my own uh, intelligence. I was a very insecure, anxious kid. Amen, baby. And one would argue currently, but <laughs> not the podcast to figure that out. <laughs> not the podcast. This is not the therapy. This is not the therapy hour. Uh, I already had that earlier this week. Hey. But no, <laughs> yeah, baby. What's up? Uh, did you have to read 1984, or what were some of your favorite books that you had to read in class growing up? Favorite? In middle school, high school, yeah. Favorite? I gen- So this might sound like, so I, even to this day, I really have a hard time reading. And I didn't used to have a hard time reading when I was okay. much younger, like early elementary school, I could read everything and anything um i've always been more interested in nonfiction, to be totally honest with you if like as far as reading goes less so than like novels and stuff but i remember in middle school we had to read the outsiders in class Ooh, sure yeah that was that was one of my favorites i just remember thinking like wow this is actually good as opposed to like just something they make you read dude yeah that was like so in that same english class where there was the uh the smarty pants of the smarty pants yeah uh that was my, I think, in that class, it was my third time reading the book, um, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Sure, okay. 
because I read I read it on my own. I think maybe when I was in fifth or sixth grade, and then it was covered in another class. And then by the time I got into this advanced class, I don't think I was immediately in it. Oh no, sorry, I read it my freshman year of high school because my advanced English class already right. covered in eighth grade. So the second time we read it, I was like, "This book's really good," and I gave into peer pressure and said, "This book is bad." Whoa, um, damn! But I really in. like that book. I think Fahrenheit 451 is a bu- good book, but I, uh, to my point, yes. one of the only books that we read in that class that had a sort of consensus that people liked it was The Outsiders, and the other one was The Life of Pi. Oh, God, that's interesting that you guys actually read that book in school. What's the what's the the academic reasoning behind Life of Pi in school? I think it's just like, it's. I remember it being a really good book. You could kind of talk about religious religion and stuff with it and kind of like symbolism it was an easy like kind of dip your feet into symbolism kind of book gotcha and there's enough uh, the way i remember there's enough like kind of ambiguity with it so it kind of like just teases your imagination and you're kind of like sure what really happened here or something um it's interesting that i've never read life of pi but from what i've been told and what sort of like because i remember when life of pi came out in theaters and stuff i the angley movie the Yes, the ang- <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yep, the angry movie. Uh, but uh, I remember loving it when it came out. I thought it was so awesome. I was like, this is like the best like use of like special effects outside of like a huge Hollywood blockbuster I'd ever seen. Um, oh, yeah. And I remember loving the movie, but then someone had told me they were like, in the book, it's actually very ambiguous, sort of like, what happens if you like <clears throat> believe Pi's like story or not, you know? Yeah, that was the yeah, 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 definitely. I remember that being a big point of discussion once we finished the book. And I actually you know what, honestly, to be completely honest, I've not seen the Ang- the Oscar winning Angley movie, The Life of Pi. Wow. I missed that when it was in theaters and I just it seems like I, you know, you see screenshots of the life of Pi and you're of the life of Pi and you're like, Oh, this is like a really uh, a um Really, it, it's a feast for the senses. It's beautiful. Totally. It's gorgeous. And I feel like if I watch it on any size TV other than seeing it in the theaters, it would just be like, yeah, I don't know. So maybe once we can go to the movies again, there's a Life of Pi revival. <laughs> yeah, everyone's demanding Life of Pi be put back in theaters. Christopher Nolan is saying, put Tenet on the back burner. Let's get it to <laughs> Life of Pi in theaters as soon as we can. Well, you know what's crazy, though, is that like back in like – the 80s from what i've been told uh and what i've like looked into is that they would like re-release movies in theaters all just, the time just, up like the 90s dude yeah just to do it like i remember i was listening to a podcast about back to the future and they were like the only thing that competed with back to the future like as its like run was going was the re-release of et which had come out three years prior so that's just, crazy. Just to think that you could see literally in one day, if you wanted to, you could go to the matinee showing of Back to the Future and you could catch the nightcap of E.T. both in theaters. Like, think about that. I know. You know, I've been watching a lot of Siskel and Ebert um, reviews just as like kind of background noise or to help me like fall asleep or just as sure. like kind of just 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 a, my kind of like nice little cocoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going Ebert reviews. And I was watching one today cuz they have like full episodes on YouTube. It's great, honestly. They have full episodes on YouTube and I'll just watch those. And they were reviewing the re-release of The Graduate. 
Like, because oh, wow. of Graduate, it came out for, like, a 30-year re-release in, like, 1998 or something. And I'm like, that's crazy. That would just get, like, a Criterion. Like, that just has a Criterion release now. Yeah. And there's a Criterion, like, half-off sale. And that's how you can get the Graduate into your life. Or you just torrent it. I guess that's the other thing. Like, <laughs> or you could just, like, torrent a movie. Are you are you advocating <laughs> that option. for the Graduate? Or what are you saying? Uh, I don't know. I was kind of curious. What's your, so maybe we're getting too far away from the beginning <laughs> of the show by asking about the graduate, but I do, I, what, my point was, it is interesting. It was interesting to listen to their review of the graduate and it kind of diminished in their, in their eyes, honestly, Weird. 30 years later. Yeah. Roger Ebert was like, I remember I was reading my review of the movie when it came out. Cause he reviewed that movie when he was like 26, 27 or sure. something like a cub, cub film reporter. Uh, and here he is, like a, a wizened older gentleman in 1998, or yes. was, you know, 50 or something. Uh, and he's like, I remember more of like the the vibe of that movie when it came out, and now it just kind of seems like there's just an all these dull imitators. And maybe that was Siskel's point too. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's retained its power, but maybe we'll cover the Graduate on our AFI Top 100 podcast. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Unspooled. It's me, Paul Shear, the King of Podcasts. Blair with oh, me. thank God. I'm so happy I get to be Amy Nichols of this duo yeah I, I, I get to have the real hot takes here. i was just about to say you got the way better end of the deal being amy nicholson i will say though I love it's interesting though that you even brought up the graduate because the graduate actually used to be the movie for me like the big classic there's a couple of them that are like this but the graduate really used to be the one for me where i was like man i don't fucking like this movie this was like high school yeah. this was like high school noah being like it's i don't a hard movie to crack when you're not like of a certain like age in your early 20s in the 60s like you just kind of really have to be dedicated into being in the vibe of that time otherwise it just will not connect for you well the thing is i watched it i want to say my junior year maybe the summer between my junior and senior year aka the most perfect time in your life to watch that movie hence the term yeah. the graduate and i loved it and it was like totally oh, turned around on me, and so um, the one, the one big classic. And I know that this is this is not the hot take <laughs> podcast, but you're gonna get my hot take. Anyway. It almost is. It might as well be. It basically is. But the the one movie I have never been able to fully understand why people laud it, and maybe to a certain extent I do, and I just don't think it's as amazing as people say it is. But I've never, ever considered apocalypse now this like amazing movie i've never gotten into it in that way okay i'm gonna put a pin in that and we'll come back to that at a much later date because i do we do have a pot an actual discussion of two topics to talk about (laughs) damn um because i you know what it's it's actually apt because in between recording last week's episode and this episode and release of last week's episode, I did actually sit down and watch Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. And you know what? Real good. Liked it a lot. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. No. Listeners. No. 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 We're here <laughs> to talk about... Um, and Noah, I, I teased before we uh, started recording the episode proper that I have a special thing for you. Do you want to... But I, I have something... Very apt for this Dear this episode here. Science. Wow, is that the literal physical media of Dear Science? You you're gosh darn right, buddy. This is a almost twelve year old compact disc of T V on the radios, Dear Science. And listener, you may be wondering why is this such a big deal? <laughs> Maybe you 
stumbled onto this podcast playing on the subway and you didn't get a chance to read what we're discussing this week or this podcast is playing on the loudspeaker of a subway restaurant and you're like what is is, this yes (laughs) that would be the ideal way for this is like if anybody's out there listening to this podcast during their shift at a subway sandwich store uh please let me know it's the uh it's the one of the it's like i think it has more like owns more real estate than mcdonald's it's technically the most popular restaurant in the world i believe that more but anyway yeah you can't escape a subway i think there's actually one in my bedroom closet right now but today folks we got an album we got a movie we got just noah we got just mason can i say it real quick because i don't think we've said it yet. welcome to the show this is it's on the list a podcast (laughs) about underrated media movies more and music i'm noah margarine i'm will was my co-host mason mason how's it going oh great Thanks. Okay. Special so, thanks to Ryan Kenny for coming on last week's pod and talking about the incredible Passing Strange. Wow. Uh, you, you can watch that movie. Like we said, you can watch that on YouTube in its entirety. It, I think that our discussion, uh, listening back to it, uh, made a very good case for it. But uh, that is not what we were talking about this week. We have two new things. Two things. Wow. To talk about this week. Yeah. Mason. We pre- we basically already got into the discussion. And I fucking speed bumped us and railroaded us. So this is a you choice Great. for the album. But uh, yes. what do we what do we got, Mason? Why don't you preview? It we for got us? TV on the radios, two thousand eight. Um, thir- their third studio album, Dear Science. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, claps, claps, claps in the chat. Claps, 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 claps in the chat. This is a uh, you might know it because it has a very uh, soothing blue um, cover. What shade of blue, blue would you say? Like an ocean blue? Like an ocean? Yeah, it, it reminds me of the ocean when I'm looking at it. Um, the the colors, it's kind of like a little push on a little push letters on a felt board. Say dear science, and they're white, but there's a reflection on them, so they look a little blue. It's a very <laughs> it's, it's an album cover that I love. Honestly, sure. I love this album cover. Um, but one of my favorite things about this is it's one of those classic CDs that is not like in a jewel case. It's like sure. kind of a flip cardboard thing here love that uh and i and you know throughout the years i did not held on to a lot of cds and there it's certainly the cds that i held on to none i would really think uh i would describe as good but one of my favorite okay. things about this is all of these whoa the, the lyric sheet is one piece of paper can you put that up to the mic so that the folks at home can hear the lyric sheet thank you the lyric sheet, folks. um but it has all of the lyrics for every single song, all 10 tracks on this album are on one sheet of paper. All the credits are on the back. Uh, really well. <laughs> Wait, did you say that there's, do you say there's 10 tracks on this album? I think there's 13, there's, my friend. So there's 11 on the studio release. Whoa. But there's 13 on the Spotify. Actually, 15, I think. There is Spotify. technically 15 on the Spotify. Two of them are um, remixes. this is the thing. So I listened to the so you know Noah calls me a, a, a dirty liar every time I say that this is what I do, but I did listen to this album twice, okay. once, both times through on unverified, Spotify. but that's okay. Uh, just like my former Twitter, unverified. Uh, but <laughs> I listened to it once, the thirteen tracks before the remixes, and then I double checked to see what the studio release was. And the second time I listened it through, I did I disc- I did not listen to the last two tracks. Smart. Um. But, uh, yeah, Noah? Yeah. So, what is your history with the band, the group, television on the radio? Mason, would you even believe me if I told you that I have a huge history with this band? I'm very happy to hear you say that. I love that you said it. Okay. Please, I would love to hear. So, here's the thing. Um, I texted you about this 
earlier today, and I'm freaking the fuck out because I am, I was convinced up until about 4.30 Pacific Standard Time as of this recording uh, that the first time I ever saw or heard of TV on the radio was when they did Wolf Like Me, which is their biggest track ever and also their biggest track off Return to Cookie Mountain. One might argue their signature song. Maybe we can talk about this later, but that's very, it's it's one of their most well-known songs. Definitely, sure. definitely. And I was convinced that they did that song on Saturday Night Live, and it was around the year of 2006. I would have been, believe, believe get ready for this, I would have been nine years old in 2006. That's- crazy i was 12 13 yeah he's a, he's a little bit older than me but that's okay we can still be friends even though even though he's even though he's a millennial and i'm a millennial gen z cusp we can still find a way to make it work but i was convinced that i saw them on saturday night live and i swear to god there's no evidence of them doing wolf like me on saturday night live online and i was completely mandela affected by this i was like i cannot believe it but i do know that there is video of them doing it on david letterman's old talk show in 2006 and i do know that around that time my dad was kind of a fiend when it came to recording late night shows he's a bit you know of the generation where late night tv was hugely important and so he was especially letterman I totally. feel like for a certain type of guy, Letterman was a huge deal back in the day. Well, he was um, easily the most, like, subversive and, like, I don't want to say mean-spirited of the, like, big people, but, like, he was definitely the one who was doing the weirdest stuff. He was. It's, like, kind of this, um, it's it's this weird, like, kind of, edu- like, that used to be, um, you know, speaking of Siskel and Ebert, like, thanks to guys like your dad who just recorded everything. That's yeah. why I'm able to watch Siskel and Ebert on YouTube. There's a ton of old Letterman on YouTube. And I used to watch that a lot when I was living in LA and I was working at the production company and there was no work for me to do. I would just watch old Letterman clips. And I knew Letterman more as the, like probably from that era, the 2006 era, the, um, the Michael Richards apology era, <laughs> the uh, cheating yeah. on his wife apology era. Um, He's like one of the one of the only late night hosts that we know of who like openly was like, I fucking hate doing this show at a certain point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's also crazy, like the whole history of him being on the CBS show and like not losing out of the of uh, the the late show, the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight show. Thank you. Uh, That's also crazy. But all to say, if you watch like old Letterman clips, the thing that sticks out to me in my mind about like early Letterman is just like how dry he is compared to what you expect of like a late night show. Like late night hosts are really not like dry and with their guests they're not really curious they're there to kind of just like amp you up and get you like kind of they're there to do promotion for whatever that guest is doing they're there to like do very sly promotion while feeling you know johnny carson was like you know in a lot of ways this is not the johnny carson podcast but but not yet uh, it's not (laughs) we're about to check out next week's episode that's gonna blow your fucking mind but uh no it won't we're not rebranding at all but um (laughs) we uh it's just amazing how like Someone, you know, more like along the lines of like a Jimmy Fallon, you know, his whole thing is like, we're going to get the guests out. We're going to have a good time. Whereas Letterman, it really didn't feel like he was like, okay, we're here for a good time. We're here to do some weird shit and like entertain you, even if I'm not like, quote unquote, the most likable guy, you know, 
of all time. Yeah. So all to which say, is why, I'm sorry, which go is for why it. it makes sense that TV on the radio would be performing on Letterman versus a Saturday Night Live. Not that it doesn't make sense that they'd be on Saturday Night Live, but TV on the radio and like kind of indie rock is way closer to Letterman's lane. If you kind of want to get, I I, I think if you want to um, equate so the two saw, in some way. Yeah, I guess if you're gonna hold them up. <laughs> so each other. what happened though is is they did perform on Saturday Night Live. But in 2008, when Dear Science came out, it was Bradley Cooper was the host and Dear Science was the musical guest. And uh, I know know they did Golden Age. I don't remember what else they did, but they have performed on Saturday Night Live. So in my mind, and this was in 2008 versus 2006, so just those events must have gotten melded in my mind. And so, but I was convinced that they had done Wolf Like Me on Saturday Night Live. And that was the first time that I had heard them literally up until I was today years old. (laughs) I learned (laughs) that TV on the radio actually was on Letterman singing Wolf Like Me. But that's crazy. But uh, I was very intrigued by them. I thought that they had a really different sound. Like they were just so different and I couldn't like, compare them really to anyone that I had known at the time, especially back in 2006. I was like, damn, this really sounds very unique. And then Mason, uh, in the year of our Lord, 2012, I'm taking mm-hmm. uh, film classes at my school and I'm graduating high school about to start film <laughs> classes in college. <laughs> yeah, so again, you're a little millennial and I'm a millennial <laughs> Gen Z cusp and somehow we make it work. But, um, this older student had done a music video to Will Do, which is the song that you so lovingly parodied at the top of the show. And I saw that the teacher was playing the video for us. It's like, here's an example of a really good piece of work. Like, here's a really successful music video, basically. And he showed it Mm -hmm. to us. And I was like, oh, shit, that's TV on the radio. But I had not heard that song yet. This is my first time hearing it. And Mason, this was such an earworm for me. That song dug its way into Dude, my brain in a way it that will burrow. it stays. It will stay there. Like the, the song will do. That's why it's in preparation for this episode. I'm listening to a lot of TV on the radio, and I think mostly sure. just will do. And the th- the reason be- being, it gets in your head and sticks there. I think it's almost a perfect song, but that's so you're 2012. You're doing this. You see this music video and it just like stuck sticks in your head. I stay sticks in my head. I see this guy make this music video and I'm like, okay, well, um, I think I have to do something with this song, like make something with this song in it because it was just like had overtaken my brain. I was constantly listening to it every chance that I got. And so I did, I made my own music video to will do but it was like a narrative music video it was about like mm-hmm. the like breaking up of a girl and a boyfriend and like the whole like remembering of that and like what that was like and it was the first time that i had made a movie that i actually felt good about what i had made that is so nice <laughs> that's so nice and i was that's so, so sweet buddy that's so, so sweet <laughs> i was so proud of it and we showed it in class, and it got a good reaction. And, uh, you know, people were like, hey, this is, you know, better than the other guy who made the other music video. I don't know what that guy's up to now, but uh, I loved that song, and its song meant a lot to me. And I was 
felt like I could really relate to it based on some romantic stuff that was going on in my little, you know, 14-year-old, 15-year-old heart and brain at the time. So that happened. And then, Mason, (laughs) what happened was I got my wisdom teeth out in, like, the summer between my sophomore year uh, of high school and my junior year of high school. And that was when I decided, okay – I'm go- Breaking Bad was in its final season and the finale was coming up. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. And I decided that oh, I was yes. going to binge all of Breaking Bad while I had my wisdom teeth out and I was recovering from that. And, I mean, it's not like I was really doing much else anyway. You know, I'll be your wisdom teeth out. Yeah, I watched 18 movies when I was getting when I was recovering from my wisdom teeth. So that's, I, I feel you, buddy. <laughs> that is crazy. That's a lot. If you, if you could somehow find that list, like I have my spring break list from that Sonny Dion Jr. episode, we should yeah. we should talk about that. But um, I... Uh, I was I was watching all Breaking Bad, and I believe it's season two. I think uh, there's season a scene... two, episode seven. I think. Yeah. Okay, so you know what I'm about to say, then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course, of course. Oh my god. <laughs> and so there's a moment in Breaking Bad for those of you who haven't seen it uh, in season two, where which I actually think is the weakest season of Breaking Bad, but that's literally an entire different podcast that we would have to do to, in order to really have. That I don't want to do a Breaking Bad podcast. No, thank you. <laughs> so I'm watching it, and all of a sudden. DLZ by TV on the radio off Dear Science pops on at the very end of the episode. And it's an insanely important moment in the show because it's the one of the first times you see Walter White really show his bad side publicly. It's one of the yeah, yeah, it's it's almost when he makes the choice to start living as Heisenberg. It is like one of the first turning points in that show to my memory of that show. Totally. Um, at least uh, it's, and it's a very, it, like you said, it's a very important moment. I did watch the clip, that clip. Do you, uh, and he just looks at the guys and goes, stay out of my territory. <laughs> he's like picking up paint from the, like the Menards or whatever yeah. the fuck. And he's just like, and he sees the guy picking, uh, uh, like we said, this isn't the Breaking Bad podcast, but it's it's a it's a pretty good scene, honestly, all things considered. Um, but that isn't it. That's uh, that is quite the journey. Is there anything after that in your TV on the radio? <laughs> I mean, they've just been a band that, like, literally ever since, like, like literally, I was nine years old when I heard them for the first time. I still really can't equate them to any other band. You know, they feel very singular. In that regard. And they've just always sort of been in my life in a weird way during the end of high school. Shout me out off Dear Science uh, Mm. became a really important song to me, like toward the like literally like months before graduation and everything. Uh, They've just always been like an important band to me. And I'm really sad they haven't put out an album since 2014. So, uh, yeah, I think. um, Yeah. Gerard Smith, one of the band members, died around that time. True. Like, as a really young guy, got like like died of lung cancer of all things. Uh, I just want to make sure I, I know. have his name right. Uh, but but just really, um, yeah. And they, you, yeah, it is really uh, disappointing. Yeah, Gerard Smith, um, because they have this like, they're you know, a, they're pretty in the kind of indie rock stew. I feel of like the night of the two thousands. There isn't really anything that kind of has there i would say like there's like a mainstream just like general pop sensibility and just like the kind of other weird experimental shit that they're doing they're doing Um, a really amazing blend of so many different 
sounds that it really is hard to pinpoint and explain them. You really just have to hear it to really fully yeah, appreciate it. So I remember, so I don't remember hearing Wolf Like Me before hearing Dear Science. It's very possible I did just because it came out in 06 and Dear Science was 08. I remember Dear Science coming into my life. I will say it would have been, it came out September of 2008 so yep. I would have been a freshman in high school at that time and I was still I'm pretty sure subscribed to I I've said this on the podcast in the past and it's a little bit of it's it's not a shame but it it, it is an interesting I think just piece of context i was subscribed to rolling stone magazine you always you always are, was, act weird about rolling stone magazine and i i don't know, I don't know. why i don't know why either i don't get why that's such a hang-up for me but it is uh, and this was like one of their dear science was an album that they rated uh very highly i want to say maybe four or five stars and i had a little bit of like kind of allowance money and i was like i really want to get into music and other stuff besides just like the white stripes and you know classic rock and stuff that i was already into and i sure. saw this like review i don't remember if i sat down and read it but i saw like the star rating and i'm like i'll just buy this album uh so i went and i bought the cd dear science wow uh, put it in the itunes put it on my ipod do you remember uh, where you bought the cd per chance because that is a very interesting I, idea to think about where it would have CDs been would have been one been of available. two places. It okay. would have been one of two places. It would have either been the local Best Buy or the local Barnes and Noble. Got you. Okay. Would have been one of those two big. It would have been a big box store definitely because that would have been the only place around me that would have had that at that time. Sure. Um, but you know, like you were saying, I remember putting on the CD and listening to Halfway Home. Um, oh. I don't even know if Halfway or, or Golden Age even, and just being like this doesn't really sound like anything that I'm used to hearing at 14 years old or whatever, 13 or however old I was in 2008, 14, almost about to be 15, 14, 15. Um, and it kind of became an album like, and the thing with like finding that thing when you're that age, is it like kind of just imprints on you, I think. Totally. And it kind of becomes something that you can never fully escape from. And this has kind of been on my list of things to cover on the show for a long time. I think mostly because of that. And I think because in the kind of, um, I think this is something of a, I would, Stevie on the radio, I think is a band whose influence, I think, and maybe like 2006 return to cookie mountain, uh, stuff up through Dear Science and maybe even a little beyond. I think it's, it's a band whose influence we haven't quite seen yet. Sure. Um, I think that in like more sort of experimental hip hop, you can see touches of the influence, but I would want to, you know, do a little bit more research and dive into that and be like, you know, is this like kind of the way that experimental hip hop was going naturally and Dear Science and TV on the radio was kind of well, it makes adjacent it, to it. It begs the question was Death Grips listening to TV on the radio because Death Grips comes out with the money store in 2012. Um, and I remember I, I'm my buddy like had that album and like could not stop listening to that album. I think I've heard the fever AA, you know, over like 12 <laughs> million times. And uh, you know, who would have thought that death grips, you know, see literally eight years from now, 2020 would have influenced the way that every single hip hop artist yeah, sounds saw, now. I minutes before record starting recording this, I saw a meme that was like 2050 dad rock. And it was like, Hundred Gex, uh, uh, Charlie XEX, right. uh, Death Grips, The Money Store, Young Lean. It was really funny. 
but yeah, I feel like maybe this is an album that is, it, it could be even a, like older millennials, I think, or like Gen X millennial cusps, even this is something more <laughs> in their wheelhouse. Um, but I think that uh, the other thing about it is this was coming out, I think, in the immediate, uh, like in the kind of just the tail end of the Bush administration. Yeah. And I remember that. And you hear this. Um, and I think DLZ in particular is a very Bush era song. And 100%. maybe that was the fir- that maybe that was the first song. And it, it, the scary thing about that is you hear it. And a lot of this and that song in particular on this album I think it's like that's kind of probably the standout. I wouldn't say standout track, but I think it's definitely the one off this album that people would know, mostly because of Breaking Bad, right. and also because it um, the the character of that song is is a um, person in power, or like the kind of antagonist of this song is a person who's in power that has been polluting. Uh, you can read it as someone's like polluting the air and polluting the atmosphere. Um, and that has not ended. That has not changed. <laughs> been, uh, if anything, that has uh, gotten worse. And um, I, it's so interesting to hear this song, this song and this album, I think 12 years after that, living in the kind of the Trump, the current Trump era. Um, it almost seems like uh, we're coming on the beginning of the, the, the Obama age with that and the kind of the kind of false optimism or the, the optimism of that, if you want to call it. Um and the the kind of the cynicism of of DLZ the, the, the there's a character there's a characteristic cynicism I don't think it's quite a cynical song but there's a cyn- there's a cynical nature to it that I think listening to it now was really very much just like fuck should have listened man I mean like we had <laughs> right um I, you know but that's that's my immediate thoughts on this song so. I posted on Instagram when I was listening to this album, probably for the second time, the song Stork and Owl. And you said that was your second least favorite song. It is. On the it album. Is. And I was like, of course, Mason's going to fucking you know, poke that one out on Instagram. And you, and you know what I'll say? That's not my favorite song on the album either. It was just really hitting for me that time. Wow. But what is I'm curious if is one of your least favorite songs actually one of these original 11 or is it one of the last two? Because I feel it might be one of the last. My 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 actual least my my actual least favorite song is Heroic Dose. I think that that is the yeah I yeah yeah the weak I was not spot a fan of that one of the album. Yeah. It kind of just feels like out of place in every sense of the word, you know. Because that's the thing is, it's like you listen to, if you listen to this album and cut out after Lovers Day, it leaves you on such a high. Yeah, um, Lovers like especially DLZ is this like like we were like I was saying, very like kind of cynical, intense song. Uh, this is beginning to feel like the dawn of the loser forever. And then lover's day is just like this, this literal like celebration. There's like a marching band playing. Um, and given the, like there's some other heavy shit on this album that I'm sure we'll get into. Lover's day is just like such a good release and such a good way to end it off. But yeah, heroic dose would have honestly been my guess for your least favorite track. But so Noah, had you listened to this full album? Never, never the full album. I had only heard, little pockets of the music DLZ obviously because of breaking bad. And then um, shout me out for some reason that song had like, like I said earlier had become sort of like an end of high school anthem for me. It was sort of like this big like release. And I used to think that that song was like perfect for the first half because Mm -hmm. of how it it, like changes beats and like changes uh, rhythms and cadences 
throughout or not throughout the song, but like halfway through the song. And I was like, damn, if they had just stuck with the way that it was during the first half, it would be like an absolutely perfect song. But now listening to it for the pod, I have to say back then Noah was completely wrong because the way that it changes halfway through the song is what makes it so special. There's a very clear evolution and a very uh, interesting build. You know, it's very slow, very somber, uh, very down tempo in the beginning. And then the second, Mm -hmm. literally halfway through the song, it becomes almost like chase music. It sounds like it could be in like Disney's Tarzan or something like that as far as the beat is concerned. And it just is like this beautiful release. I remember in high school I had to do like a capstone project and uh, I put a lot of, you know, work and it was very important to me. And, you know, at the time and I look back on it and I was like, wow, you know, that was pretty cool that I had the opportunity to do that. And um, the end film, I had like films interspersed throughout my speech and the end film was sort of a wrap up of everything that I had been talking about. And there were three songs that I was considering putting at the very end. I didn't know what song I was going to use at the very end for the movie. The first one I thought was going to be uh, the air that I breathe by the Hollies. I thought I was going to throw that song in at the end. Didn't work. I feel like it's a graduate. There's a good like graduation, very light, very airy, very like, uh, like, windows movie maker effects like the tile (laughs) the tile transition of people like with their arms around each other or like hanging out at the quarry or whatever teens in oregon were doing (laughs) hanging out at the quarry spitting into the quarry because we're just bored as fuck um but no and i put it in there and it didn't really work um and then i thought oh maybe shout me out by uh tv on the radio will work and then again, it was the weird change. It didn't really in line up with the editing that I was doing. So ultimately, I just stuck the closing, uh, not the closing credits, but the last song that you hear in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest over when Chief is, spoiler alert, when Chief escapes uh, the mental institution. <laughs> I just threw that uh, on over it. But, uh, you know, this this uh, this album as a whole uh, not as a whole, I will say not as a whole because that last track is terrible. <laughs> but um, almost every song on this album is a fucking banger. Like, this is such yeah, a good album. It's so interesting. It's so, uh, like, like, lovely at times. Like, it just feels so, like, warm. And then at other times it feels very, like, cynical, like you were saying, but also very, like, like smart, you know, DLZ feels like a very smart song because you can it never is, yeah. fully like capped, like catch up to what he's saying. But every like little sentence is constructed interestingly and has interesting content within it. There's such a fun, um, there's such a fun like play with the rhyming scheme that he does in DLZ. This is, uh, this song was written by, uh, Tunde Adebimbe, who, um, fans of the movie Rachel Getting Married will remember will recognize as the man that Rachel is getting married to um wow. but one of my favorite things it, he was supposed to be played initially by Paul Thomas Anderson um, oh my god let me I'm trying to find it um dang it what was the thing so oh it's it's uh in the verse in the second half so after this is beginning to feel like the dawn of the loose like this is beginning to feel like the long winter blues of the never and then it goes this is beginning to feel uh, like the, um, sh- God damn it. I lost it again. I- it goes, uh, this is beginning to feel like the long way the blues of the lever of the never. This is beginning to feel like the screws getting loose of the lever or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And listening to that, I'm just like, what the fuck? And then he goes, um, 
Never you mind, Death Professor. Structure's fine. My dust is letter- dust is better. Um, your victim flies so high. All to catch a bird's eye view of who's next. Never you mind, Death Professor. Uh, love is life. My love is better. Your victim flies so high. I could be the diamonds confused with who- who's next. Never you mind, Death Professor. Your shocks are fine. My struts are better. And he just keeps playing with the it's Never poetry. You Mind, Death Professor and the poetry of that lyrics. It's just just for DLZ. It, it's it's that's fucking crazy. Um, in what love really Dog, stood out which, to me this mm-hmm. this listen through was the song Golden Age. I had never really given that I, song its like yeah. just desserts or its its due diligence. And that song is just a. It's really this is just a really funky album. It's like funk and punk a little bit mixed with some like it is electronic Electron. distortion thrown in there. Yeah, Golden Age was when I was listening to this album. Uh, when I first got the album, um, Golden Age, Halfway Home, Dancing Choose and DLZ a little bit were like my four were like the four that I had on my iPod and I listened to over and over and over again. Dancing shoes um, is the other song that they did uh, during the Bradley Cooper episode. I'm just now remembering it was dancing shoes and golden age is what they did on uh, SNL, which is dancing shoes is kind of a weird one to do, but I think that's almost like the thing to do. If you're like this kind of band on SNL is to yeah, do the and, one that's like a single and then do one. That's like an album cut that you like. Yeah. And the crazy thing about dancing shoes is it's all about uh, a guy who's constructed an identity off out of the, the news media, specifically the news media that he produced, that he, um, that he consumes. So, you know, throwing it back to our discussion last week with Ryan Kenny and, um, the music man it starts off with a little tip of the hat to the music man with he's a what he's a what he's a newspaper man and he gets his best ideas from a newspaper stand from his boots to his pants to his comments and his rants he knows that any little article will do though he expresses some confusion about his parts in the plan and he can't understand why he's not in command the decisions underwritten by the cash in his hand bought a sweater for his weimer honor too wow um, go off crazy, king crazy song i love it dearly i um but t- going back to golden age I think when I was younger, uh, when you're young and you're looking for your place in life and really concerned with that, I think, um, Golden Age was a song that I went to a lot for comfort, I feel, because the chorus of that is the age of miracles, the age of sound. Well, there's a golden age coming round, coming round, coming round. And even now it kind of gives me chills. Yeah. When I say it. Uh, and that is also just a funky song that you can dance to, um, and I think the, the the thing with that song, that song I think encapsulates so much of what I love about this album as a whole is that it is holding um, this the like the distortion and the beauty, um, and uh, alongside um, it, the the distortion and the beauty can exist side by side, and this other like um, the cynicism and this world weariness and and feeling defeated can exist next to just pure joy like. I th- when I think of this album, I think of it being like kind of segmented two tracks at a time. So halfway home and crying, one kind of bleeds into the other there. Um, but I definitely think that Golden Age and Family Tree are something of a diptych, and then oh, totally. Family Tree going into Red Dress are also something of a diptych. I think that each track in this, except for the one that you don't like that much, and honestly, if I was if I had to rank these, I'd probably put Stork and Owl towards the bottom of that ranking. Yes, you um, would. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the we don't right agree choice. much on the show, but uh, when we do, we do. Um, <laughs> but I think that going family tree, which is a song about um, a relationship being beset by um, 
uh, bigotry of some kind and living in the shadow of uh, of a family's sort of prejudice, which is a very it's a very there's a some difficult imagery in the song. I will totally. say they talk a lot about um, gallows and hanging from a tree, which is in the current context it's a thing. It's it's definitely imagery that is very it's purposely charged and loaded. And I think that, that but that's also such a um, beautifully written and produced song like this. Yeah. Ballad, the, the chorus this, even this literally pump, it. pumps it out. It says we're laying in the shadow of your family tree, your haunted heart and me brought down by an old idea whose time has come. And in the shadow of the gallows of your family tree, there's a hundred hearts sore free pumping blood to the roots of evil to keep it young. I mean, I mean, that is poetry, you know, about very, heavy ideas and they're juxtaposed oftentimes with these very lush, beautiful, um, but somewhat simple beats and back, you know, backbones. And I think that you're totally right that this album specifically, and a lot of their work, um, I can't speak to every album, you know, perfectly, but a lot of their work does deal in juxtaposition and in the opposites that occur, whether it's the dialectic between what the music sounds like and what the lyrics sound like, or what the lyrics sound like, you know, beautiful or harsh and the lyric and the, the production sounds lush or harsh. You know, you have a very interesting uh, tension there and a very interesting dialectic that occurs. This is without a doubt a recommend for me. You know, I, I think that this is yeah. a, actually, I would say this might be, the best place to start with TV on the radio as well. I would definitely, I would definitely agree. I think that this is, um, I honestly have not heard all of return to cookie mountain. I just kind of pop in and listen to wolf like me, which is the preceding one. And it's also uh, by all accounts, very good. I just have not given it my time for whatever reason. It's very good. Uh, And that song obviously is like, you know, like you said, their signature track, (laughs) but it's it feels a little less refined in the way where it feels a little bit more like raw, which isn't a bad thing at all. But this album really does feel like they've honed in on a sound, even though their sound is so eclectic, it feels like they're even more focused on what their sound is. And that's why yeah. I think this is the best place to start. Yeah. And I, th- I like nine types of light enough. Uh, I didn't really give much time of day to their last album, just cause it came out at a time when I was listening to other things like, you know, fucking like, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, that's when I was listening to like death grips and stuff. So this TV on the radio, the last TV on the radio yeah, album dude. came out and didn't like make a splash with me. So I wasn't going to really check it out, but I definitely agree that th- this is a full recommend for me. Um, I love this album so much. It, it's so nice to hear that it, to listen to it and, and he- hear that not only does it hold up, but it has only gotten better. Um, and it's still sometimes frighteningly relevant, but I think that there is some, um, maybe it's, it's, it maybe some solace I will say in this, like I said, family tree, definitely a difficult song to listen to with, um, current with just like wrestling as we are currently with the history of racism in this country. But TV and the radio is a band with, uh, Kip Malone and Tunde Adebimbe, who were the two chief songwriters and singers, both black men, both very concerned with politics. I think both very also strong, um, songwriters. Yeah. And if, if it's like I said, if I said anything fucking stupid, just be patient with me and DM me and point me in the direction so I can do my own learning. But, uh, yeah, I, this is a full recommend for me. Uh, I would not recommend listening to, I would recommend if you're listening to this on Spotify, 
uh, cut out after Lover's Day and don't listen to Heroic Dose or whatever the last two songs are. No, uh, Make they... Love All Night Long is pretty good. I, I okay. Don't listen to okay, Mason. Fair. Just don't listen to Heroic Dose or the remixes. <laughs> the first 12 tracks are really, well, Stork and Owls, eh, whatever. But the first 12, <laughs> just listen to the first 12 tracks on Spotify. It's, it's, it's worth a listen. Yeah, definitely. All right, so that was TV on the radio. And as things go, when we have... Uh, a, 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 a dynamic duo show, just me and Noah. Noah brought the movie this week. And Noah, Noah, <laughs> what is the freaking movie that we're talking about this week, buddy? So it's interesting because, you know, uh, I don't really ever think in terms of like, oh, like I want it to, um, like, I, like very rarely, I guess, on this show, have I felt, oh, I need to find something that is a good pairing to what the other person is bringing. And uh, I like that has never like concerned me. But for some reason this week, uh, I felt like it would be weird to do other other movies that were on the list of things that I wanted to cover with TV on the radio because it is such a like, you know, specific sound that I almost felt like it'd be too much of a gear shift to do something like, I don't know, uh, like shirkers or something that's on my list. You know, I feel like that would just be like too weird of a gear shift. So I was actually very like cognizant of the movie that I was going to pick because Mason was like, I want to do dear science. And he told me that before I picked the movie and I was thinking, and I was looking at what's on my list and I'm like, well, what the fuck is going to be a good pairing in my eyes with dear science by TV on the radio. And I'm scrolling down and I'm looking and the list just keeps getting longer and longer. And I'm like kind of stressed and it took me a little bit to figure it out. But then when I saw, uh, you were never really here sitting on the list. I was like, this, no, might I'm be... here. I'm here. I'm here. I've, I've been here. Noah. <laughs> no, 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 I don't no, know no. what Mason. you're saying. What was the movie that we're talking Mason. about? Mason, Mason, you didn't hear what I said. The name of the movie is you were never really here. I have never been to Portland, Oregon. Mason, Mason, what are you doing? <laughs> who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. No, Mason, on the name of the movie is You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lynn Ramsey. That's Lynn with an E. Woo. I always mess that up. I always think it's Lynn not Ramsey. E. Lynn Ramsey. Lynn Ramsey. And uh, what does the Ram the, say? The, the Ram says, shut the fuck up! Shut up! <laughs> That's what the Ram says. And I'm the Ram, and I'm telling you, shut the fuck up. Let me talk. So, uh, I figured that this would be a good album or a good movie to pair with Dear Science by TV on the radio. And uh, I figured that, you know, I wanted to talk about this movie. Uh, there's a lot, I think, to talk about this movie with. Uh, and I'll just start out by saying uh, one thing about it, which is uh, in 2018, when I saw this movie in theaters with uh, three other friends, I did not ever think that in the year, the next year preceding, that we would have a real life version of the plot elements of this movie with our pal Jeffrey Epstein. I did not think that that would really come to fruition, and guess what? It did, and that is a uh, that is just a little bit of a marker to show how prescient and how tapped in uh, the author of the book, Jonathan Ames, was to potentially. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like what could have happened, you know, in my mind, seeing this movie at the time, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. We'll probably never hear about something literally like that in mainstream <laughs> media. Will we? And then literally the next year, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, little, little St. James Lolita express. And I'm like, holy shit, uh, this happened. Yeah. And so that kind of blew you know, my mind a little bit. 
that being said, it is kind of crazy that neither uh, Lynn Ramsey nor uh, Jonathan Ames were killed because this movie exists. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Lynn Ramsey or Jonathan Ames, if you're listening, please be careful. <laughs> please yeah. be careful. Don't do anything crazy. Oh, man. Yeah, you're right. It's like, uh, it, it's... <laughs> 2000 wasn't 2018 the year that under the silver lake was supposed to come out which is yes. the most epstein brain movie of all time <laughs> yes 100 percent. and this movie and uh under the silver lake and maholland drive as a triple feature you're gonna be dead by the end of that triple feature so i yeah i i'm you're saying that now and all i want to do is have a big bowl of ice cream because i need something real and sweet <laughs> well so i want a nice know. strawberry milkshake <laughs> okay well i want to know mason yeah uh what's your relationship with uh, this movie. So he came up earlier on this episode. Uh oh. But this is a movie that I saw with friend and former guest of the pod, Sonny Dion Jr. and his girlfriend Ken's, and I believe his brother was with us. I don't know. But we went to the ArcLight Hollywood. Classic. And the time we chose, uh, the time that we went, because it was going to be previewed by none other than Joaquin. Phoenix. Wow. So we get, we're hanging out. We're getting our drinks before the movie. Uh, we're going up to the theater. I think the theater that we were going to see the Santa was at the second floor. So we went up the escalators. Instead of down into the dungeon, we went up the escalators. Into heaven. Into heaven at the Arclight Hollywood. And uh, we get into the theater. And who are we behind but none other than Mr. Joaquin Phoenix. Oh. So he comes on and he goes... And he is still in, like, full Joe mode. He's very burly. He's got the beer. And he's like, hey, hey guys, this is uh, it's Joaquin. Thank you for coming to the show. And, uh, and uh, I hope you like it. And, uh, yeah, here it is. Didn't you have much of a preview? Mason, very- where did you go? I thought Joaquin Phoenix was on mic. Whoa. Uh-oh. He's getting up. Folks, he's getting up. Hey, sorry. I had to go to the bathroom real quick. I had oh, Joaquin Phoenix. You missed uh, <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, dude. Are you holy shit? What? You missed him. Well, we've become close personal. I was the first person to text him after he won the Oscar. I was the first person he responded to after he won the Oscar <laughs> for this movie. That's the crazy thing. People forget that he won the Oscar for this movie. For you okay. were never really here. You're giving me some fake news, and I'm gonna have to put the put the give give you the the no thanks. Uh, but one. I saw it and I loved the movie, even though I had to pee for most of it because we drank a lots before seeing it so i had to pee for most of the movie so i got Very up smart. um towards the end i missed the the only section of the movie that i missed the first time i saw it was the sort of explanation you know when there's that very arty sequence in the last 75 percent of the movie where he kind of pieces oh, it together right that's the only part that i missed like i think i ran out when he gets out of the out of the lake or the river and then comes back right as he like gets to the the final boss stage. guess what <laughs> final boss real level pedophilia and guess what you don't need that part mason so you didn't know i feel like i didn't anything. miss anything um and so i watched that movie and i was like this is this movie fucking rocks i love this movie uh saw it then and then i saw it uh for a second time i didn't look this up but i did watch it in that aforementioned um production company job yes that i uh did not uh was not a very good job all things considered i remember talking about this movie and how much i loved it and one of the i'm not gonna out anybody but one of the guys that i was talking about it with uh one of the sort of exec level people i will say somebody that was paid way more than me to be uh i will say not as uh co- knowledgeable of the films as i yeah. was uh, he was like, oh, you know, you know, you can't work with Lynn Ramsey. She's, you know, a difficult person to work with, which is like 
movie guy code speak for she's a fucking bitch because she knows what she wants and she right. will ask for it and will not back down because uh, Lynn Ramsey is a good director. Uh, but I so <laughs> Brother, I watched it. you could say that again. <laughs> I will say that as many times on this podcast as I need to. Um, but I'm trying to find my specific review when I watch this. But I, all to say, I watched it uh, for a second time um, on January 11th, 2019. So roughly 20 days before I got let go from this job. And my Smart. review from that was yeah you know it's funny watching pedophiles pedophiles get got with a ball peen hammer is one of those things that never gets old you know wow and then you were fired <laughs> 20 days later yeah they found that review and then i remember i it was such a miserable like i think dreary january in los angeles which is if you're not from los angeles january is a very dreary time in that city and I was in like the, my little desk and my desk was like far enough out of the way that I wouldn't get caught for watching movies. So I watched that and then I followed it up with uh, one of Lynn Ramsey's earlier films, Morvin Kalar. Have you okay. seen any of her other have you so seen that's other films? that's the only other one. That's the only one I haven't seen. I have not seen Morvin Kalar. Oh, so you've seen Ratcatcher. I haven't even seen Ratcatcher. I've I've seen Ratcatcher and I've seen um, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. I actually watched we need to talk yeah. about Kevin very recently because it's on Hulu and I you know, love Lynn Ramsey and I'm going to watch Morvan Caller, you know, during these, uh, during these unprecedented times as companies <laughs> love to keep reminding us. Um, but, uh, I, uh, saw rat catcher. That was the first Lynn Ramsey that I saw. And I was intrigued by it because I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Mason, uh, but Barry Jenkins, uh, on his criterion, not familiar, not familiar. <laughs> okay. So just listen to this. How about this? So if you want to learn something, just listen to me. Uh, he had a criterion closet video, uh, up on the criterion website. I think right around, uh, like it was right, either right before the Oscars or right after the Oscars when Moonlight took home best picture. I can't remember specifically. Oh, and Moonlight won best picture. Yeah, do you remember? It was this weird uh, situation where everyone was really happy that La La Land won, and then everyone was really sad when Moonlight won, because uh, <laughs> that movie doesn't get, you know... I, that movie is perpetually underrated in my mind, because I genuinely believe that's one of the best movies ever made, like, straight up. And I think yeah, it's perpetually underrated. I feel like, and, and definitely in, like, sort of this, the, the movie fan circles I'm on on the internet, it comes up a lot as a much-appreciated, much-loved movie. But I, I am truly with you that I do I think that if we had to redo an AFI Top 100 list with to include movies from since made since 2007, Moonlight's got to be fucking on there. Like, Moonlight has got to be one that puts in the fucking, in, in the fucking ca- time capsule. 100%. Uh, but anyway, so, Yeah. Oh, I was just, I was, I was, uh, no, that move, that is, Moonlight is, whew, I don't even really want to get into it because I don't think I'm going to be able to stop, but I'll just say that uh, one of the best movies I've ever seen, it's one of the best movies ever made, um, it means a lot to me. And uh, anyway, Barry Jenkins, it's around the time that Moonlight is getting all the Oscar buzz, it's either post-Oscars or pre-Oscars, uh, and he's doing the Criterion Closet video. And he just frantically asks, it's a great video, just to watch someone who loves film be able to look into the Criterion Closet and take whatever they want. Those videos are so fun that they need to do them them more. But Barry Jenkins literally looks up at the camera with like these big eyes and goes, where's the Ratcatcher DVD? And then it cuts and they hand him, and it's not a Blu-ray, it's a straight up old DVD from like the early mid-2000s. Wow. And he says, "This this was the first Criterion. He actually, well, he says, 
this was the first criterion Barry Jenkins ever owned. He's talking about himself in third person. And he talks so much about how he loves Lynn Ramsey and how he's such a big fan of Lynn Ramsey. And at the time, Moonlight was basically all I was thinking about. And I'm like, well, I got to track down a copy of Ratcatcher then, and I got to watch that. And I did. And I was shook. It is mm. so visceral and so sad and so moody and just like it was it's the type of filmmaking that could so easily go wrong in somebody else's hands because what she's so amazing at i think mason and you can either back me up on this or you can completely disagree but i don't think you're gonna disagree about this she's so amazing (coughs) and so good at giving you just enough information for you to comb mm-hmm. along the movie exactly how she wants you to, to be following along exactly the way she wants you to, and then is so good at making you feel exactly how she wants you to with such little information by using the aesthetic qualities of filmmaking that are at your disposable being sound design, editing, cinematography, uh, you know, all those big elements that they talk about in film school. She is a master at using them and combining them to make you feel something specific. And she is so like, there are stretches in this movie that are more or less silent. That could be like, that are like a silent film. Just in, you were, you were never really here specifically. And that's also, I, I, I am going to back you up on that point. I, I, th- I think you're, you're absolutely right. There aren't a lot of other filmmakers that, um, there are filmmakers that I think definitely try to, um, be like a, like, 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 uh, attempt minimalism in a way, yeah. and, uh, but do it in a way just that they think that, that by like showing you less means that you, it's, it increases the artistic value of it because there's or makes more it feel like falsely important in some way. It, yeah, like, definitely. This, like false importance that is very it comes off as pretentious. And I know that one of the complaints about this movie, because this is a very divisive film. People either really like this movie or can't stand this movie. And for people that can't stand the movie, I know one of their complaints is that it's pretentious and that uh, it's confusing and that it's X, Y, Z. Yeah. Do I need to refer you to my letterbox review? Uh, It's funny watching. It's funny watching pedophiles get got with a ball peen hammer is one of those things that just never gets old. I don't see how anyone can have an issue (laughs) with, with, with pedophiles getting got with ball peen hammers. That just seems like, (laughs) I think the people that don't like it, I think it's, I think it, it, that is so lost on them. I have to imagine because they're just bored. They just want to be like drive. Which, sure. Like, you know, and I think that Drive is a movie that's kind of all aesthetic, and it's a movie that is also very. Um, uh, uh, I I like that. I like Drive just fine. I'm not down. I'm not shit talking Drive. I think it's a it's a, it's a fine movie, but I definitely think that of the two, You Were Never Really Here is, which is a this is going to be a weird word to use to describe this movie in particular sure. because it's so lean, but I think you were never really here is a much meatier movie than drive is totally um, drive is just like, it's kind of, it's a, it's what Nicholas winding Refn is very good at doing, which is like riffing on B movie um, and sort of B plot um, tropes, tropes and, and just putting this like kind of neon something somewhat slow cinema aesthetic onto it. Uh, and they're very pretty movies. They're nice to look at. I haven't seen Neon Demon. I'm just going off of Drive and Only God Forgives here, honestly. But like sure. of those two, I definitely think that 
people that, uh, well, they might think both that and this are pretentious, but I think that where You Were Never Really Here gets the edge up for me over something like Drive uh, is that the driver in Drive is very purposefully a cipher. You yes. don't know much about him. Um, he is sort of, he he's just the job, basically. It's a riff on the Walter Hill movie, The Driver. We all know this. Everybody knows this. It's it's part of the fucking school curriculum, as you watch The Driver with Ryan O'Neill and Isabella Johnny, and then you watch Drive, and you, you make comparisons there. Um, but he, but the driver in drive is very much an archetype. He's, he's there surely purely as an archetype where Joe, the Joaquin Phoenix character in this movie, he's a guy that, you know, so much of his history, but Lynn Ramsey gives it to you in like cuts that are like this long. It's so impressionistic in the way that she's doing it. It almost feels yeah. like, like, you know, it's the same way that the impressionists, you know, or the post impressionists or whatever that movement was called of painters, uh, use the brush to create a texture and effect that is supposed to deliver that information to you rather than the actual content itself. Here, the style is the substance. The style yeah. is the thing that's telling you this guy grew up in a traumatic environment as a kid. This guy is a veteran of war who has seen some stuff and he cannot handle day-to-day life. And the only job that he's apt to do is to rescue underage girls in, from dangerous situations. And you know yeah. that. That's not unclear. You know that. That's very That's how concrete. You, like like the driver in Drive, where you meet the driver in that, like, I will say awesome, pretty awesome chase and bank robbery sequence. You meet him, you meet Joe in this movie while he's on the job um, and rescuing uh, a, a sex trafficked young girl in Cincinnati, I believe it is. It is. And you don't see him... All you see really is the aftermath. You get to know him through how he's cleaning up afterwards. He how like, he talks rubs- to the guy on the phone when he's done working. Yeah. And it's just and um or even like like you were saying earlier, the way that this the the cinematic language is used to convey this guy. There's so many shots of him like co- like I think the first time like the first Aside from how awesome the beginning of this movie was, when I knew I was locked in, I was going to love this movie probably forever, was when he's at the airport or the bus terminal or wherever, and he's drinking the water, and then it cuts, and there's, like, this sort of, like, pan over to the water fountain, and the water's still coming out, yes. but he's not there. Yes. Um, and just communicating the the existence that this guy has to live of always, like, of, like, just kind of wraith-like and just being invisible, like, being invisible moving through the space like he was never actually there totally Um, and if he was ever seen it is like it's because of the job that he's doing and the and the he had he oh god it's okay it's so fucking good this movie's so fucking good i am gonna get too ahead of myself if you don't come in and say something right now all right well i'm coming in mason watch out because uh you're right i mean you're just you're 100 right the texture that she is able to create uh with a two-dimensional quote-unquote image on the screen, Lynn Ramsey I'm talking about here. And not only that, but she really knows how to pick her collaborators, and specifically in the composer, which is Mr. Johnny Greenwood, of course, who, you know, you got snaps, snaps for, for Johnny, Johnny Greenwood. Greenwood. It's so perfect, that pairing. And they work together as well on um, uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin, but the pairing of Johnny Greenwood and Lynn Ramsey, I don't 
think could that there couldn't be a better composer director pairing. I know that PTA has worked with Mr. Greenwood in the past as well. And that's a good pairing. You know, they work well yeah. together, but it just feels like PB and J when Lynn Ramsey and uh, Mr. Johnny Greenwood are working together, the score, the way that that interacts uh, with the imagery that you're seeing. I don't have the name of the cinematographer, or the production designer up with me here, but the ability to convey so much in so little with so much emotional resonance in the way that it is cut, in the way that it is shot, in the performances captured on screen, is really what makes this movie stand out. I had the pleasure of seeing this movie in theaters, uh, and it was one of the most amazing movie-going experiences that I've ever had. I walk out of the theater with my three other friends at the time, and I literally, I think I was definitely the most hyped person in our little group. I literally walked out of there saying, that was fucking incredible. They need to teach the uh, security cam sequence uh, in oh, film school. Buddy, yes. <laughs> that sequence yes! where he is entering the lair, so to speak, where the, where the main girl that he's after during the duration of the film is being held. That sequence Nina played by uh, yes. I'm just gonna look her up real quick because I think she gives gives a real good performance. Uh, Ekaterina Samantsov. I'm not even gonna try to repeat what you just said, but <laughs> that is who plays Nina. She's very good uh, in this film. There's no, I mean, there's no one who's doing a bad job in this film. Like everyone is operating at such a high degree, and the the way that that sequence is cut, you just have to see it, I mean, truly, and I'll try to explain it as best I can, and Mason, if I'm getting anything wrong, jump in here and tell me, but the way that the sequence is done is that you are never seeing violence up close, and very rarely are you actually seeing the violence at all, because it yeah. is cut together through security cam footage of the of this sex layer that he's breaking into and whenever he go you see him like about to attack a security guard or a pedophile and then as soon as the violence really kicks in she cuts away to an empty hallway and i think the secret to that sequence is the song that's played diagetically it's in the so scene creepy and it's so comes... creepy and it yeah. lets you keep track of where you are and where she's cutting to because of how far close the song actually sounds to and where will, you like, originally were and my favorite thing about the just the cutting of that is how it net the, the cutting the song doesn't sync up with the song sync up with the cut so sometimes it'll be a little ahead of the track and a little totally. behind on the cut it's it's so smart um yeah with i remember seeing and even though i had to pee really bad when that security camera scene started i was just so 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 happy it's <laughs> it it's truly um it, it that's one of those things because it's like i don't think this movie had a huge budget it couldn't have you know no. and it's also um that's one of the things where it's you have to since that's also the first time that we're seeing him be this like kind of avenging angel sort of character, this, this, this Avenger character, um, that seems important so that we understand, um, Joe, his work. We've seen him cleaning up. We see him like prepare for this, but we haven't yep. seen him actually do the job. No, we haven't seen um, him in battle yet. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, you can have the kind of like flashy action scene where it's like a oneer or something behind him as he's like stalking through, like old boy it, style or something like that. Yeah, exactly. But it's so much more effective for this story 
where you just have these little glimpses of him like at the door and then coming in and then it like the, the security guard getting up cuts away so that you could see um you know the different rooms and then it comes back and he's going up the stairs and then the security guard's dead on the ground or whatever and he's bleeding out and he's like it cuts and he's going up the stairs and you it's always know length. exactly where he is that's what i was just about to say. oh ooh, we're vibe we're vibing tonight <laughs> we're folks. vibing um, right now baby <laughs> but that's the thing that's what's also it's like you could do that and you could do that poorly and have him like just randomly show up but there is like uh, a timeline and there's a clear geography of that space that you're aware of even though you're essentially just in like a security booth watching this tv screen basically and watching this happen uh it, it's it is it, it's 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 truly remarkable it's like when i was saying earlier like that's like how you can make the most out of the limit your limited budget totally um, i think when i think about this movie i think about what i like to call the um uh, uh, I had a film teacher in a film teacher. One of my favorite film teachers, Ron Falzone. I think I've brought him up and I may have even brought up this, like this equation that he told us once is that all a good movie uh, to make a good movie. All you need is a good script, not enough money and not enough time. Wow. And when I'm watching this movie, I'm just like, fuck man, let three for three with Ron Falzone right here. And you were never really here. <laughs> Does, uh, has Mr. Th- Falzone seen you were never really here, to your knowledge? That I don't know. You know, once quarantine lifts and I can, like, reach out to my former professors that I went to school with and I can be like, hey, I'm in my late 20s and I'm uh, not using my degree. I fell out of Hollywood. I'm having a little bit of a crisis. I'd like to get coffee and catch up sometime. <laughs> Ron Falzone's <laughs> sure. one of those guys that I email. Uh, he's a good guy. Very smart. I got along with him really well. Um, so, and I will ask him if he's seen you were never really here. This is, this some, this does seem like the kind of movie that I think he would vibe with. Can I ask you, uh, Mason about two moments in particular of the movie that I think are, um, I don't want to say controversial, but I think are, uh, contested sometimes between people. It's their moments that like speak to you either love that moment or you hate that moment. And it's very indicative of if you like the movie or don't like. The movie. All right. So I want you to say what these moments are, but I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm probably going to love both of these moments. I figured you would. I'm kind of lawyering, lawyering you right now and asking you questions. I <laughs> you're, you're, to. you're, you're leading the witness. Yes. Hey, he's badgering <laughs> the witness. It's his witness. What is that from? Is that from liar, liar with Jim Carrey? It might have been, you know, that was one of the Siskel and Ebert episodes I was watching as they were reviewing Liar Liar, and they both enjoyed it. They both thought it was a good movie. Good. I love that. So, <laughs> it is a good movie. It's, it, that, damn, that is a good movie, actually. Maybe that's a future episode. But, <laughs> but, but uh, the, the two moments uh, are the very end of the film, uh, where he has, there's oh, a yeah. surreal uh, moment where you believe that he has committed suicide. And then the second moment, well, let's just talk about that moment first. The, the very end okay. of the film where you believe that Joaquin Phoenix has committed suicide. What, when you were watching the movie for the first time, what was going through your brain? So, uh, not a bullet, I'll say that much. Uh, <laughs> um, so, honestly, that happened, and I, it was like took me for such a shock. And then I like eased into uh, – that scene, that part in particular is so funny – which is a weird way to say it, you know, because you did just watch a guy blow his brains out. But then once the initial shock of that moment wears off and you're still like easing into the 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 atmosphere of that like little chintzy diner that they're in, you're like, why is no one freaking out right now? And then the waitress, even though she's splattered in blood, lays off the casually check. lays the check on the table and then Nina comes up 
you're like, oh, this is just like his kind of the, the climax of his like uh, uh, his his his, ang- his anxiety or his delusions. I remember just feeling really shocked. Um, and then the movie like kind of ramps up towards the end. And then there's that cut to black right before the ending. And I remember just being like, oh, shit, wait, the movie's over now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's really where I was with that. Where are you with that moment, Noah? So I'm like, you know, fucking vibing out to this movie in Irvine, California, just loving the shit out of this in movie. Irvine. Oh, yeah, geez. baby. That's where we had to go. That's where we had to go to see the movie. That was the only place it was playing. And uh, I'm just vibing the fuck out, Mason. And I can't believe that this movie is happening. And I'm like, holy shit, this is blowing my mind. And then that happens. And I was shocked, like just like you were. And I was very sad for a moment because not only is this a thing that you watch and you it's he's got all the elements Joe does of the tragic hero because you pity him for what has happened in his life. But you also fear that he's capable of really gruesome violent things because he is capable of very gruesome violent He's, things. Yeah, I've spent an hour and 20 minutes or so of that movie just just witnessing either the aftermath of those events or the preparation for those events or the or witnessing those events. Yeah, 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 definitely. And he and you kind of and I at least I did. I don't know about you, but I always was worried throughout the film that it was going to end poorly for him and not because he does something stupid but because he does something in my mind very heroic being putting somebody else's life in front of his own and sacrificing himself for someone else and it's very clear throughout the movie that he's he he is struggling to live he is struggling with the idea of how much violence there is in the world and so when you do think that he killed himself I was so sad because I'm like, wow, you know, this guy will probably have made it out otherwise thinking, you know, my life can get better. I was able to do something good. And in that moment where it's like, oh, wow, he really couldn't hold on. And then when the girl comes over and says to him, Joe, wake up. It's such a beautiful day. And he just picks his head up off the table. I was like, ah, yes, the sweets. It's the sweet moment of knowing that it was not true and it was just a thought and just a daydream. And it's just so rewarding as a viewer to have your expectations altered and uh, subtly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not misconstrued, but uh, subverted. Subverted. There you go. Subverted the expectations on you there. It's Uh, just so amazing. It's so amazing, and uh, I, I hope this isn't going to jump on your second question for me or the second moment too much, but, you know, that ending kind of always is like, you know, why did Lynn Ramsey decide to end it this way? But thinking about what you're saying and how she's using the the sound in particular in this movie, and not yes. just the score, but just how, uh, even on my, like, like, teeny little laptop watching this, just... You know, he's standing by the train and the train sounds so loud and there's not a, there's the only moments of or the only place where he has like kind of peace from the noise of the city or the noise of his job or the noise of, like you said, the violence that he is, is forced to witness to uh, is when he's at home with his mom, which is also this, even though he's there, it's a very triggering traumatic traumatic place because it's where there's a lot of violence perpetuated against him and his mom by his dad. Um, yes. 
but you know he's in this um he's in this diner and the noise of people be- and the the diegetic sound in there and the the the, the sonic sort of landscape becomes so much that he there's no release but to kill himself and then she says it's such a beautiful day and what um what what two sounds start to overtake the soundtrack it's the really uh up song uh if i knew you were coming i'd bake you a cake which is so incongruous with the scene and the rest yeah. of the movie that it's so again that's another thing that's also kind of funny and the last thing you hear before it cuts and then the johnny greenwood score comes up and then you're back on an empty table is him taking the the world's loudest slurp of a milkshake yes. um, which is this sweet this very sweet thing this like little treat that he's offering that he's giving himself and it kind of is in the second time i watched it it's this moment that i read as like oh like he ha- there's been some sort of it doesn't mean that he's like completely cured of his anxiety or this 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 like this sort of innate like this trauma or whatever but at least there is the hope and possibility that he can start to hear like the goodness if yes. you want to call it that um, 100% it, it, it gives you hope, hope. Gives you hope, definitely. Uh, just, just I want to talk really quick about just, just the man himself, Joaquin Phoenix, and sure, just incredible fucking movie. There's r- rarely a shot in this in this movie that he's not just completely commanding the frame. And even though he's a big guy in this, I love how um, and so imposing. I love how most of it he's just like so um, quiet, but also so menacing. Um, he's not a guy that I think you would, he's, he's, he's a guy that's very quick to violence. As you see in that scene in the, he's picking up like drugs or something from, uh, that pharmacist in the, in the stairwell. Maybe he's a black dealer, black market dealer of some kind. Um, and he just like beats the guy up for being late and giving him an attitude. Um, but you also feel such like sympathy for him. And I'm thinking about at the very end of the movie, when he comes across the spoiler alert, the slashed throat of the governor, Yes. And the governor's just dead, and he doesn't know. Like, I don't know if you went into that last, the the final stage, the boss level, wanting to kill himself. I'm sure he definitely thought that that was going to be like, you know, I have to save this girl, and if I die doing it, at least I'll die doing something noble. Right. But he finds the dead body. His throat's already been cut. And watching it, watching his kind of breakdown, it wasn't like you would see that scene and you would think that like the hero would be like, Oh, the bad guy's been defeated. There'd be like this triumphant moment, but he has right. this like full on panic attack. Um, that's just, it's, it's, it's really, um, I, it, it's, it's so incredible. I think to witness it's such a good piece of bit of action because he's just as like, now what the fuck do I do? Um, it's, if he thinks if he can save that girl from what's going on, he can almost save himself in a certain yeah. way. And, the fact that the girl had to resort to violence, um, you know, to defend herself against this, you know, this guy, I think to him as a character is like, well, she's now down the war path of using violence the same way that I yeah. had to use mm-hmm. violence, you know, and it, it is so amazing how we're getting all this and not a single word of dialogue is being spoken. No, there's it's not a single all... di- I'm sorry, go it's, for it. It's not a very dialogue-heavy movie, which is, no. like, you think that you hear good writing and you think that that's just, like, cool one-liners or something. And that's obviously part of it. Like, you know, there's the Aaron Sorkin side of things, which is, yes. like, you are almost overwriting. Um, but this is – the the writing here is so good because it's just a 
like kind of a blueprint or a foundation for the action almost it's it's, 100%. it's when i think of that that foul zone um the foul zone equation as i as i like to call it sometimes it's the reason why a good script is so important is because if you if the actors aren't given something to do then that's at least one element of filmmaking that's going to be completely um just just off the table your eyes right. is not going to understand what's going on if the writing isn't good um and what's great is you know in this in this watch through i think is the first time that i real really noticed and that it really stuck out to me that joe was an fbi agent or a former fbi agent yeah. and left that job after those girls were found in that uh shipping container yeah and you get that because you see him without the beard behind the wheel of a truck in like one short clip it moves the movie moves forward and then it comes back and you see like it keeps coming back to that scene which is like you can tell that's a different scene because it's like the color scheme is different it's like gray it's cloudy it's dusty um it almost seems like a dreamer or or uh, a dreamer a memory but you see him wearing an fbi hat and i think that like in a less capable writer or directors when joe shoots the guy um that killed his mom um there would be the inclination for that to be the scene and for that character to only serve the purpose of being like, you know, Oh, I heard you were FBI. I heard you were in the military or something or giving you telling you that information basically. But Lynn Ramsey is such a good filmmaker that she knows that that's not what that, that's not that what happened in that moment. That's not what that moment needs. No. Um, th- that it's, it's, so what do you think about that scene with the, with the, the dying um, so that's what I wanted. That's the other moment I wanted to talk to you. That about was part it two. Is, okay. It's so unexpected, specifically the moment where he gets on the floor and starts singing that song with him. That's the other part of the, that's the other yeah. like sort of divisive moment that I think, you know, if you love that, you probably are going to love the movie. And if you don't like that, well, buddy, I'm sorry, but it's only 89 minutes. So you got to <laughs> suffer through it with me. But, uh, you know, that is so unexpected and so fitting and I feel like in another director's hands and another actor's hands, it just comes across as corny and cheesy. But in that moment, through the violence, through everything that this guy's done, he literally just lost the only person that he has in the entire world in his mom. Yeah. yeah. And now he's getting the information about how to, you know, proceed, you know, so to speak, uh, with the rest of the movie. And he just takes a moment with this guy who's dying on his floor to sing a song and they sing a song together. And it is so touching and so beautiful, yet so violent in a lot of ways, very juxtaposition in the same way that our TV on the radio album is. It's the beauty and the violence coming together. So in a way, maybe a good little pairing we have here. Maybe a little little wine and cheese plate you got here. You have your crudite with TV on the radio and then you can pair it with a nice... (laughs) You were never really here. Big entree. (laughs) Uh, No, I totally agree. I think that that is... um, I think that that is such a... uh, that's, That's a scene of just that's the scene where I think you really see who this Joe guy is more than anything else. It's it's that's really the encapsulation of that full, that, that guy's full, I think character is totally a guy that is, he's lived a life of violence. He can kind of just kill two. He can down two guys with as many, with as many shots with two shots. Um, and he feels no, 
it he doesn't hold back when he needs to like hurt that guy for more information but he's also not going to let that guy die alone like the last shot of that scene is them holding hands yeah like joe lays down next to him and they sing that song together and they share that moment just so that joe or just so that 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 dying um you know security guard or whatever doesn't die alone totally i think that there's maybe an understanding there that this was just a guy who was doing his job right between the two of them but again that that's like you know the movie doesn't give you anything like he doesn't say like i know you're just a guy doing your job or whatever um i it's it's more to me like there's i think i don't know knowing what you know about that joaquin phoenix character and just the pain that he's going through um and the loneliness i think that he does feel i think that he is automatically like he sees a guy dying even though he did just try to kill him and even though he did kill his mom or didn't is that clear didn't he say that the other guy killed his mom yeah the other guy did yeah okay so maybe just the guy that was long for you know just kind of collateral damage and i think he understands the um because joe's a guy that doesn't hurt human well, human beings the, i would the, say like the <laughs> other the other agent the other so there's two guys in there with him the guy that he ends up singing with he says Oh well, the other guy did it. You don't know if he's telling the truth or not. He's maybe trying yeah, to, you know, right. get his life spared, you know, in this insane yeah. moment. But at least what he says is that the other guy did it. We have gotcha. no way to okay, know if okay. that's the truth or not. But uh, in that moment of need, that's what he's saying. But you're right. He is not letting this man die alone because he understands what a human life is worth. And you, again, you know that because of how Lynn Ramsey delivers information to you through editing, through sound design, through cinematography, through the direction of her performances and the shot choices. And it is just amazing to me that she either had some amazing dumb luck, which it's not dumb luck, but you know, she's just like kind of four for four on fucking movies, you know? (laughs) Well, not only that, but like there's moments in this movie that you literally have to have planned prior to shooting if you want a certain shot to cut into the next shot a certain way i'm thinking of like when they cut to him and he's waiting on the train platform and stuff you know oh yeah 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 you know you have to know that prior so you shoot it a certain way so that's not dumb luck she knows exactly what she's doing and mason there's only one other moment i want to talk about because we are reaching kind of the end of our rope here as far as time goes but mm-hmm. uh the moment to me and I'll this episode's going to be longer than the movie we're covering. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, love, I love that. Um, the, I will say, this is a movie that you have to, you really should try and watch on the biggest screen that you can because of yeah, the aesthetic yeah. uh, impact of the movie and how film aesthetics are being used. Um, I'm fortunate that I was able to watch it on a nice size screen with a nice sound system right now. Um, but in the, th- it doesn't compare to what it was like seeing it in theaters, seeing it no, in theaters yeah. was just such an unbelievable moment. But I will say no matter where I think I am watching the movie, the scene that will always feel the same to me is the scene at the, the river where he takes his mom to the river. And I don't yeah. know how they got some of those shots. That is it's... such a mind fuck to me, how they got those shots in the river. It, it really, it's. I, I, that is like, you could take frames of that just sequence and put it in a fucking museum. Like it is painting with, it's painting with light and image, um, in a way that is, it's just, 
there's there's in like renaissance paintings basically like fuck it it reminds totally. it, like caravaggio or something um just how they use light and shadow uh and and just the, the the deep murky depths there i also have no idea how they shot that especially for the budget that they have and for you know i'm sure the other constraints that were not completely aware of um totally. i didn't do much research about the making of this movie ahead of time but it's just it is incredible it's one of those things where like i'm watching it even now and i'm like i will probably never understand how they made something look this good i know it's, it's it truly is incredible and that's just like i think almost every single frame of this movie is also just like they say a picture's you know there's that old john luke godard quotes cinema is truth at two to 24 frames a second or whatever oh, very um, good <laughs> very good mason yeah, oh, hey, hey, Joaquin, you want to say hi to, to Jean-Luc real quick? Oh, hey, Jean-Luc, it's, it's nice, to, nice to meet you. I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. Yeah, I like, like the Joker movie. It was very... Uh, anyways. Um, but I fuck. think... <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I think, like, there's a kernel of truth there, which is, like, if you were doing... if if Why not make the most consistently beautiful images if you're making a movie that you can... Yeah. Uh, why not take the time to just construct something that's going to just at the very least look good. And sure. if you can convey information through just that image in the way that it is um, spliced next to other images, then, oh, baby, <laughs> that's the freaking motion pictures, baby. That's that the is, good shit right there. <laughs> that is the freaking motion pictures. Is there anything else that we need to say about this before we end the show? Full recommend. Watch the same. same movie. I think it's on Amazon Prime. You can well, watch it there. Well, you know what? I, I'm i kind of torn because I personally, yes, this is a full recommend in my eyes, but I know that this is not a full recommend for everybody. This is a very divisive film. This is a film that a lot of yeah, people don't sure. like. And, and so I'm torn between giving it a full recommend and a conditional recommend, but and I thought I was going to give it a conditional recommend coming in only because of how divisive it is. But purely speaking from my own heart, this is a full recommend. So I'm going to stick will, with that. Yeah. I will say that, you know, big time content warning on this movie. Like it's a, it's a very uncompromising movie, both in its depiction of uh, violence and it's just, it's subject matter. You don't see, you know, um, child sex abuse. Uh, but the, I think the, uh, implication of I don't think that's quite the right word or the the, the the implication of it and just the general um it, it yeah, could it's be a heavy very, movie think, it's a very heavy movie so if you're listening to the discussion and you're like this does not seem like the movie for me don't watch it uh but I still I would throw my whole weight behind this movie I think it's incredible I love it uh I think that's, that's it. it for this show wow no okay. uh, do you yeah. want to do the, the plugs here? <laughs> of course. Of course I do. So if you want to get in touch with this show, you can send us an email at everybody wants to number two, get on the list at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. It's on the list with Noah and Mason. You can follow us on Twitter at it's on the list pod. And you can like, uh, you can, uh, follow us on Instagram at, uh, Oh no. Did I, it's, this is the it's first time on that underscore I the list. I believe yeah, is the Instagram. It's, it's on underscore the list. Let me double that's check right. that. I have no, nope, it is. Here. It is. Okay. I'm fucking up here. Um, so that's no, that. I'm... If you want to follow me, you can follow me on letterbox. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. You've heard it all before. It's in the show notes. I don't need to say it again. Mason, what about you, baby? 
find me on Instagram at hotdogvicky. Find me on Letterboxd at my name. Find my other podcast, The Barn, a podcast about the Shield. We took a quick hiatus with that, but we will be back soon to finish out strong. Uh, what else? Follow my other Instagram, Big Sky Tonight. Uh, oh, quick book recommendation. Uh, sure. Pick this up. It is, and also a quick other sort of like social, social good recommendation. Uh, real quick, I think I will put in another charity or other sort of local resource in the notes of this. I have not decided what that will be, but I'm putting an edit point here to have a robot voice come in and say what the charity for the week is or the social resource, what that is. Edit point right here. Hey, everybody, this is Mason coming at you live. This week we are going to be highlighting the Aura House. That is A U R A H O U S E. Uh, you can find them on Instagram at the Aura House, all one word, A-U-R-A-H-O-U-S-E. What is the Aura House? Well, right now, it is just a GoFundMe, which will be linked in the description here um, from the information on their page. Founded by Samantha Joe and Fulani Thrasher, queer, black, cis, and non-binary femmes, um, they believe that healing as a community is integral in our liberation as a people. The goal of Aura House is to build a powerful community through the radical act of healing individually and communally. In this time and forever, we will be centering black women, especially trans black women. We facilitate workshops to create a safe space where black, brown, black and brown women can support one another in their personal path of self-empowerment. As a collective, we aim to create a culture of understanding, self-care, and spirituality by teaching each other. We occupy spaces that serve for all ages, cis, trans, queer, and gender non-conforming. So, good project organization here. They need our help with funding. Um, like I said, I'm going to link the GoFundMe to the, um, here. They are trying to raise $10,000. They have, at the time of this recording, 3806 of that raised. So, almost just quite halfway there. So if you can squirt, spare some scratch, send it their way. If you can't, no big deal. Just spread the word through spreading their Instagram. I'm sure there's a Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Otherwise, I'd tell you what that is. But in any case, that's who we're highlighting this week. Uh, okay, I think that's it. Let's ha- let's finish out the show. Oh, that was that's such a good pick, <laughs> Future Mason. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but for right now, I will say this floated into my radar. It is a bots that you can text and you can text it uh number one through seven and it will recommend you uh a a book of some kind a work of uh writing prose or poetry nonfiction, other genres of that um written by a black author and then we'll also find a black owned bookstore near you that you can order oh wow so that phone number is 409-404-0403 you text that it will give you a book and a nearby bookstore uh, speaking of black-owned bookstores, the one in Chicago uh, is Semicolon Books. I bought two books through them through um, Bookshop, I believe it is called. It's like the indie. It's like the not evil Amazon. It's an indie. You pay. You buy your books through there, and then they pay the bookstore and they donate. Also, uh, picked up this book called My Sister, the Serial Killer, by. Uh, Oyenkan Braithwaite, I believe. I believe that they are. Uh, but it's very good. I started reading it last night. Sped through the first 37 pages. Um, very quick mystery. Very good um, lead character. Uh, it's a story about us knowing too much and also not knowing enough about uh, oh, your yeah. sister's life. 
Um, very, very good. I can't wait to finish this. It's so, so entertaining. It's a breeze to read. My Sister, the Serial Killer. That is my other recommendo for this week. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think that's it. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> thanks for, yeah, I bet. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter, Defund, Abolish the Police, all that good stuff. And we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.